I want to start a three-week series called How Great Is Our God. And the first sermon this morning is going to be titled God Is. And it's interesting just how the Lord was moving this morning and hearing about what a lot of people have been dealing with and going through. I think the word this morning will be very, very um, important, and I think it will bless you. It, it has blessed me. Um, but what I don't know if you've grown up and you've had all these different views of God. What, who is God? What is God? You've always heard that maybe God is like a policeman who is following you around with his stick to beat you when you do something wrong. Some of you got like that. That guy's this huge guy in the sky with his stick and his gun, his taser gun, and he wants to to shock you to death. God is mean like that. Some of you got like that. There are other people who might view God as his grandfather who sits in his rocking chair and can't really do much of anything, but somehow he got all this power from somewhere and he's just able to do mighty things. But he's just this, you know, old man sitting up in a rocking chair, rocking back and forth, telling us stories about whatever. Some people might view God as a warrior, this guy who comes not like a policeman that gets you when you're doing something wrong, but just like this guy that's just angry for no reason. He's kind of just like, I'm mad because it's Tuesday. And I want to do something to all these people. Smite. Some of you got like that. As Christians, we need to have a correct and biblical view of God, especially the greatness of God. The problem with Christianity today is that too many people have their eyes on things and they don't have their eyes upon God, and they don't know who their God is. This morning when you heard all these testimonies, the, the common theme throughout all those testimonies was, yes, I'm going through these issues, but I know my God is great. Yes, I'm having situations, and yes, I'm having these difficulties, but I know my God. It's interesting that Isaiah writes to a people in Israel who are dealing with a difficulty. They were just put in exile. In fact, they're coming out of exile. Israel always went into exile because of their sin. Always because of their sin. So God would send some other country to come in and take them from their land and bring them to where they were and they were in exile. And so here is Israel. They've been crying out to God, God, where are you? We don't know what you're doing. And here in Isaiah chapter 40, in the first couple of verses, he talks about comfort. I want you to be comforted. And as he continues on, we're going to be studying verses 4 all the way to the end of the chapter. But I want you to understand the context of what um, Isaiah is writing to. He's writing to a people who have been beaten, who have been downtrodden. These people are going through a difficulty, and yet he wants them to get their eyes on him. And this morning, that's what I want us to do. I want us to get our eyes upon God. So as you are in Isaiah chapter 40... We're going to start at verse 6. Hopefully this thing will not continue to do this. It's working yesterday. So Isaiah chapter 40, verse 6. If you're there, say, hmm. All right. It's a good job. <laughs> Verse 6, a voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall, 
because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Before we talk about the greatness of God, I want to first talk about the greatness of man. Because man has this idea that he or she is great. But what makes somebody great? Their position, their accomplishments, their power. Those are the things that you look at saying, that person is great. But what does Isaiah say here about man? They're like grass. They wither. They're here today and tomorrow they're gone. All that they have is temporary. You remember Jesus tells the parable of the rich fool? He had all this money, all this stuff. He said, I'm going to build up my barn so I can store all my stuff. So he built these bigger barns and God came to him that night and said, stupid idiot. Tonight, I'm going to kill you. Who's going to keep all your, who's going to have all your stuff? See, man thinks he'll live forever. Man thinks everything is about him. But God says, you are temporal. Your greatness is temporary. And this is what Isaiah says about the greatness of man. Listen to Psalm 37. Psalm 37, verse 1 and 2. It says, do not fret because of evil men or be envious of those who do wrong. For like grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. You ever watch Cribs and be like, man, look at all they got. Five cars. You one person. You can't drive five cars. You have 30 rooms in your house. You ever look and say, man, I want that. I, I wish I could have that. The writer of Psalms says, do not be envious because soon they'll be gone. All the accomplishments that man gets... Eventually, people forget them. Question, five years ago, who was the MVP of the Super Bowl? I was about to say, only Jonathan would know. I don't even think he knows. When somebody wins the Super Bowl and they're the MVP, they are the most famous person in the world for at least two days. And none of y'all can remember his name or what team. Look at his look at his great look at his greatness. He ran a touchdown. He caught and and now you have no idea who he is. Who won an Oscar two years ago? Y'all don't know. I think it was uh, no. You have no idea. Who won Artist of the Year three years ago? Are you guessing? Most likely. <laughs> She's not sure. Oh, but we, hey, those are accomplishments, and that's what people chase after, don't they? But after a few years, people forget. Nobody cares who's the MVP. The greatness of man is fading. After a while, nobody cares. Now, those of you guys, have you, there's a question. Have you guys ever gone to a concert, and when the person came on stage, you screamed? Okay. Some of y'all say, no, they're lying. <laughs> I remember, I'm used to watch uh, Michael Jackson, Moonwalker. And there was the, they were showing these clips of when he'd be on stage and all these girls were ah! screaming and falling out. And I was little, so I couldn't understand. What, what's going on? Why are they fainting? This doesn't make any sense. Because they see Michael Jackson and they see greatness. And so they fall out. There's a new movie called Twilight. And what people have been telling me, is there's this apparently he's a handsome guy and 
whenever he comes on, on the screen, all the girls scream in the theater. How ridiculous is that? He's not even really there. It's, it's, a, it's a screen. <laughs> and yet, this is what people chase after, the greatness. People want to chase after someone who they think is great because of all of their accomplishments. And yet, we will forget them tomorrow. The greatness of man. And for guys, it's sports. Guys, it's for, for, for us, it's sports. Some of us. For some guys, it's sports. We, we love sports. We look up to those men. I've shaken the hands of many Hall of Famers. And I couldn't wait to, oh, my gosh, that's Emmett Smith. <laughs> Greatest running back. Oh, that's Roger Craig. That's Steve Young. Those are, that's Jerry Rice. That's Michael Irvin. These, that's Joe Montana. I've shaken their hands. And shaking their hand and saying, how are you doing? I go, man, your breath stinks. <laughs> as great as you are, you need to brush your teeth. As great, as many touchdowns as he throws, I still realize, man, this guy's just a man. And soon all of his accomplishments will be gone. Guys who won Super Bowls are now managing restaurants and nobody knows who they are. And men, we have to stop looking at these athletes as great because if your life revolves around whether or not a 20-year-old catches a ball, if that's what makes your life go, whether or not Crabtree catches a touchdown, for those of you guys who are 49er fans, he's a wide receiver. If, if your life revolves around that, if you get depressed when the 49ers lose and you call in sick to work, I can't go. Uh. Then you, I, I've been around people who will literally go in the room and close the door, and they're not going to pray; they're going to sulk. If if the greatness of man is presses you, then you have a small view of God, because the greatness of man is fading. Look at what he says. The grass withers in verse 8 and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. The one thing you need to trust in is the word of God because it stands forever. Voltaire, he was a French um, philosopher and thinker. And one of the things that he said was that he said that Christianity would pass out of existence within 100 years of his death and that um, Christianity would be swept off the face of the earth and the Bible would become a forgotten book. He was wrong. There's also some myths that are going around. I'm not sure if they're true or not, but they said that they actually used his house. The Geneva Bible Society purchased his house and now store Bibles in his house. How wonderful is that? But the word of, the God, word of God stands forever. People have been trying to get rid of the Bible for a long time. And you can't get rid of the scriptures. They're here. Forever, And that's what God says, place your trust in the scriptures. Now, I want you to look at verse 9, because as evangelists, the one thing we want to do is to proclaim to the world that you need to behold God. You need to see God. Look at verse 9. You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. 
Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. Here, other translations I like better say, behold your God. The, word Hebrew, the Hebrew word means look, see, behold your God. Men don't worship because they don't see. Men don't worship because they don't see. Because when you see God, it will turn to love, which will then turn to worship. And you'll see why that's true in a minute. When you see God, the problem with unbelievers is that they don't see God. Let me prove it to you. You don't have to turn there. It'll be on the screen for you. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Verse 3 this is what Paul writes. He says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot what? See the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. What is the unbelievers problem? The unbelievers problem is that they cannot see. They cannot see the beauty and the glory and the greatness of of Christ they see him as unimpressive they see him as just that grandfather that's up in the sky or like Hulk Hogan used to say the big man or the great man upstairs what does that even mean upstairs the big man the great man upstairs they don't see they have this view of God that is incorrect it's incomplete when Paul was before King Agrippa he gave a testimony. This is what he writes in Acts chapter 26. Acts 26, verse 16 to 18. When he's, when he's giving his testimony to King Agrippa, he says this. Now, Jesus said this to him. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to do what? Open their eyes. Open their eyes. And turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. The issue is they cannot see. They can't see. And what do we think about when we go out and witness? We think, well, they just don't want to believe because they're stupid. And they just look at all the facts and they just say, I, I, I don't want to believe that. The problem is that they cannot see. And those of you guys who are in here and you're saved now, there was a time when you couldn't see. I watch in worship and I watch people as they try to enter in. And the problem is they can't see God. And so therefore they can't worship. Imagine if you're a blind person and you go into some room and you're blind and all of a sudden you hear people screaming. Are you going to start screaming too? Maybe if you hear people running. But if you know it's a sporting event, you know it's something, you just hear people start screaming, you're not, you're not, you don't know what they're screaming about because you can't see. But if you go to a, a football game and you're standing there and Michael Crabtree catches a touchdown and he scores and you see that, I don't have to tell the person who saw that, raise your hands, clap, scream. Why? Because they saw and they understand the proper response to a touchdown is yay. <laughs> or congratulations. That's when you see, you know how to worship. 
when you see. But if you don't see, you don't get it. That's why, pe- that's why you, people can be in a service where the praise of God is going up and they're just like, I have no idea what's going on. Because they can't see. But listen, seeing is not only it. You also have to have a love. See, because if I'm at a Raider game and Jamarcus Russell scores a touchdown and I'm there, I can see it, but I'm not going to celebrate. Why? Because I don't like him as a football player. I'm sure he's a wonderful person. But I don't like him. So I won't worship. So the fact that you see, you also have to love. You also, so for Christians, we don't just see God as glorious, but we also love him and it leads to worship. And that's what Paul says. This is what I'm supposed to do. God has sent me to preach so that your eyes will be open. Your eyes will be open. Your eyes, if you're saved, have been open to the beauty of Jesus. Not to religion. Not to churchianity. Not it's first Sunday, I need to come and take my communion. You see Jesus, and it's more than Sunday. I love Sundays, but most of my Christianity takes place Monday to Saturday. Most of my spiritual warfare happens from Monday to Saturday. Not on Sunday. A lot of it happens on Sunday, but a lot of it is Monday to Saturday. But when you see, when you see Jesus, you will love him. He puts that love in your heart, and then it will lead to worship. So the the problem with men is that they don't see him. But when you see him, you will love him. Now, let's talk about the greatness of God. Now, when you behold the greatness of God, then you will see everything else in life in its proper perspective. When you see the greatness of God, you will see everything else in its proper perspective. Somebody defines circumstances as those nasty little things that you see when you get your eyes off God. Circumstances are those nasty little things that you see when you get your eyes off God. See, you have a small view of God. If you see your circumstances, if you, sorry, if you see God through your circumstances, then God will seem as nothing. But if you see your circumstances through God, then you see your circumstances are nothing. We just sang it this morning. Magnify the Lord with me. What does it mean to magnify God? We say magnify God. What does it mean? Because we, sometimes we sing songs and say words. We have no idea what they mean. You ever sing a song and you're just like, I don't even know what Ebenezer is. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Hitherto by help I come. I just be singing that song. I have no idea what Ebenezer is. So we say magnify. Do you know what that word means? There are two ways you can magnify something. You can magnify something that's small and make it look big. So you look at germs. You can look at an ant. You can look at whatever. It's small, but with the microscope, you make it look big. That's one way you can magnify something. There's another way you can magnify something, which is with a telescope, which you are making something that looks small. With the telescope, you actually see its size. We want to magnify God like a telescope and not a magnifying glass and not a microscope because God is big. God is great. And sometimes what we do is we kind of do the opposite because what I want us to be is a people who are telescopes to the world, not microscopes, not people who run around and say things about God that aren't true and embellish. You ever heard somebody embellish something? 
Say, come on to my party. It's going to be the best party you've ever been to. Girls, drinks, music, lights, everything. You go there, there's five people <laughs> and a piñata in the, in the middle. Then the person come out, hey, man, I'm glad you made it. Everybody canceled, but you here. You're just like, man, I, I'm trying to get out. Like, you embellish this party. You knew from the beginning nobody was coming. You knew that. But God is not somebody who can be embellished. Everything I say in the rest of this sermon, I am not embellishing. Everything I say in the rest of this sermon is true about God, and even to a greater degree than I can even explain it. So we want to magnify God like a telescope and not like a microscope. So let's look at some of the things that God says about himself in this passage. I want to start with verse 12. And I told you the title of the sermon is God Is. So the first one we're going to look at is God Is Immense. God Is Immense. Let's look at verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breath of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket? Or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance. Number one, God is immense. God is immense. God is big. He holds the, the waters in the hollow of his hand. There are 326 million trillion. Let me read it. Make sure I get it right. Million trillion gallons of seawater in the ocean. 326 million trillion gallons of water in the ocean. Now let me try and give you a perspective on this. If um, you go to the Olympics and you see that pool that Michael Phelps was in and he was smashing everybody with the records and everything, that pool holds one million gallons of water. So if you were going to try and fill the oceans of the earth, in, put the oceans into those, those pools, how many pools would it take? It would take 3.612 times 10 to the 14th power. That's 10 with 14 zeros behind it. That's how many pools it would take to fill... The oceans in those in those pools. God says, I hold the waters in the hollow of my hand. How crazy is that? You ever been on the ocean? I hate being on the ocean. Well, my cousin and I, I remember I was out on the boat. I'm already have motion sickness. I go on the merry-go-round and it's over. So I was on the I was on the boat. It's like, oh Lord. But I remember looking out and saying, God, how much water is here? And then I thought, you know what? This sea just holds in the hollow of his hand. Not hands. Hand. God is immense. Then he says in the next verse that he, with the breath of his hand, he's marked off the heavens. Now here's a question. How, how, how big do you think the universe is? Let me just give you a little bit of perspective. Um, a light year is the amount of times it takes light to travel in a year. So how fast is light? If you were to turn on a flashlight, you say you got outside the earth and you're outside and you turn on the flashlight, how long would it take the, 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 the beam to go around the earth? It, it would go around the earth seven times in one second. A beam of light goes around the earth seven times in one second. 86,000 miles per second. That's just a beam of light. Okay? So follow me. 
in our galaxy, you know what galaxy are we in? Milky Way, okay. Astronomy coming back. We're, we're in the Milky Way. The nearest galaxy to us, actually, I'm not, I'm wrong. Not even the nearest galaxy. The galaxy I chose is called the Phoenix Dwarf. The Phoenix Dwarf is a galaxy, and it's called a dwarf because it only has a few billion stars in it. Compared to, you know, I know, a few billion. That's so small. Our solar system, our Milky Way has about two to four hundred billion stars in it. So this Phoenix Dwarf galaxy is, get this, 1.44 million light years away. That means if you start from this Earth, you turn on the flashlight, and remember, it goes 186,000 miles per second. You turn on this flashlight, and it were to go all the way to this galaxy, it would take 1.44 million years for that beam of light to get there. That's, the, that's one of the nearest ones I chose. Scientists say that the furthest one is 13 billion light years away. That's the furthest one. You can't even fathom that kind of distance. Yet God says this. From here to here, I just measured out the earth, the heavens. You have, God is immense. You, we're sitting here. I'm, I was looking at this stuff. I was just like, God, um, this is this is this is too much. God can do that with 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 you know can, with, the, with, with his hand can just make it 1.4 million light years. That's how big God is. We're worried about the rent. Verse 15, look at verse 15. Again, God is immense. Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Verse 17, before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded as him as worthless and, and less than nothing. Again, God is immense. The nations are like a drop in a bucket. You ever have a bucket? Just take a bucket and just put a drop in there. That's what the nations are to God. Nations have money. Nations have power. Nations have armies. Today, nations have nuclear weapons. God says to me, they're nothing. What do you put on your scales? Food? Yourself? What does God put on his scales? I don't know, Hawaii? He weighs islands on a scale. He just picks up, you know, hey, now I just want to weigh how much that is. Takes mountains and hills and puts them on scales. This is a God who is immense. He's big. He says Lebanon is not sufficient. Lebanon was known for its cedar forests. And you see in other passages in the Old Testament where it makes reference to that. And what he's saying is even if you took all the wood from those forests, it wouldn't be enough fuel to, to make sacrifices to God. And even if you took all the animals in that forest, it wouldn't be enough because God is so big. They are as nothing. What Isaiah wants us to see is that God is big. God is immense. Look at verse 13 and 14. Verse 13 and 14. Secondly, because God is unteachable. 
Verse 13. Who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counselor? Who did the Lord consult to enlighten him and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge and showed him the path of understanding? God is unteachable. Another way to say that is that God is all-knowing. Unteachable. God doesn't have a professor. God doesn't need a tutor. God doesn't Google. I never heard of that. Let me put that in. He's unteachable. Some of the great men in your life, in our lives, if, you, if, if somebody were to give me an award, you know, great musician, come on up here. I would not stand up and say, you know, I just want to thank myself because basically nobody taught me anything. I just came out the womb and I was just like, for your beauty, that's the show. I just came out playing. Nobody even had to teach me. Nobody would believe that. You guys would all look at, um, my mom, she started playing the piano and it didn't take me very long to start to get better than her. But I... But I can tell you that what I learned from her is invaluable. I, I learned from her. I learned those little simple three chords. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> it's funny. Sometimes we're in the house and she we have a piano and she just goes in there to worship. And it's funny sometimes because she's playing and she... She doesn't play like she used to, so she tried to find the chords and do 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 do. And me and Shantae up there is dying because it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's so cute that she tried to play. But I would I would never say that you know she she didn't have a hand in me learning. My uncle Marcus, even my grandpa, I've learned from them. Somebody who is a human being knows that they have great teachers. Who taught God? Who taught God? There is nothing that God doesn't know. I like the older generation because they just it, sometimes they say, you know, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> when you talk about Facebook and you talk about Twitter, I have no idea what you're talking about. I like the older generation because they like to just tell you. I have no idea. R.C. Sproul, he's one of the greatest theologians of our day, has written over 60 books, known as a great theologian, has helped me a lot. And one of the things that um, he said in the interview is that he has never sent an email. Never sent an email. And he's never used the internet. I thought, wow. How do you how do you live? How do you get how do you get information around? And yet God is not standing up there like, man, all this new technology that's out there, I'm so lost. I don't know how to use the iPhone and the, and the Blackberry and I just they have all these new technologies Shalaka you teach me God has so much more technology just like stored away in a shed in heaven he can just give to man to make us transport back into time we're just keeping it up there in heaven God is unteachable we cannot God cannot be taught anything yet sometimes in prayer it sounds like we're trying to teach God something See, God, see, you don't really see it from the right perspective. Let me, let me, let me show you how this is supposed to really work. God is unteachable. You can't teach God anything. He sees the end from the beginning. So God is unteachable. Verse 18. Look at verse 18. To whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? As for an idol, a craftsman, a craftsman casts it 
and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A man too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. He looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not topple. So here we see God is unique. God is unique. He is not like any other God. Some people have to create their gods. If you've got to go to Home Depot to make your God, there's a problem. You go, you get somebody who's skilled to fashion it, to put gold on it and silver chains on it. Somebody's a little bit poorer. They've got to go to the forest and get some wood, not you know, bad wood, rot wood. You've got to get some good wood. And they make this idol, so, you know, make it so it doesn't fall over. If you can beat up your God by just like bumping into him, Oh, my God fell over. I just kind of, oh, I just, you know, brushed shoulders with him and he fell off the table. God is unique in that he is not like anything we've ever seen. He's not like the idols that we set up in our lives. God is unique. Then we see that God is also sovereign. Verse 21 to 24. Verse 21. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. Verse 23, he brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. Verse 24, no sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither, and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. God is sovereign. All the kings and all the nations that God brought against Israel in order to punish them, to discipline them, at any moment he could have just blown on them and totally gotten rid of them. God is sovereign. God is things. He's sovereign over politics. A long time ago, I stopped being concerned about who's the president because I know that God puts in positions who he wants there. For his own glory, whether the person is an idiot or whether the person is smart. You ever seen a, a stupid leader? You ever seen somebody who is who is incompetent, yet somehow they were given this title of pastor? Yet God is sovereign over all of that. He can take a prince, he can take a king, and all these kings think that they're great. Remember Nebuchadnezzar? He thought he was so great because of what he built. God made him like a little animal just out there. His nails growing big. He's growing hair all over the place, eating grass. God is sovereign. He can take a person and make you an animal. What does it mean to say he's sovereign? When God is sovereign, all it means is that he can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, to whoever he wants, whenever he wants, anytime, any place, he can just do it. He's sovereign. So God is sovereign. Next, we see God is creator. And I want you to also notice just something that um, in verse 22 says, he sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. They used to think that, you know, the earth was flat. To say, oh, the earth is flat. If they just read Isaiah, it just tells you right there. He sits up going about the circle of the earth. You could have, you could have got uh, all that people getting killed for that. 
Just read Isaiah. He said, he sits above the circle of the earth. Now, just a, a little note. The Bible is not a book of science. So we don't go to the Bible to try and figure out scientific things. People try and do that because the, what the biblical writers did is they just were describing what they saw. The sun doesn't rise and set. We understand that, right? <laughs> to be honest. Does it? <laughs> the sun doesn't rise and set. What are we doing? But they're just, they're just saying what they saw. So when we read that, it's not saying, oh, the Bible's wrong because it said the, the sun rises and sets. It's not trying to make that point. But here again, Isaiah in this point says it's a circle of the earth. And so I thought that was interesting. Verse 25, we see God as the creator. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? I like that. Says the Holy One. Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all of these? Who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name? Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. God is creator. He knows all the stars by name. There are 200 to 400 billion stars in our universe. And God knows all of their names. You ever got your kid's name wrong? Mom does it all the time. I'm walking by. Uh, jo, uh, uh, May, uh, 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 free, uh, 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 Ronnie, uh, Marcus, uh, 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 so. And you don't respond you get it right. Yeah. I'm Shala, your firstborn. You love me. But some people have a lot of kids. The, the, the Duggins or the Dugans got like 18 kids. He's going to have a lot of grandchildren. It's a little army going on there. You gotta remember all those people's names. Now imagine if you had 100 billion kids. You gotta remember all of their names. And God looks up in the sky and He goes, Charlie, Mark, Clementine, Art, Shalah, names, just na- all by name. Billions of stars, He knows them by name. We can barely remember certain things that we see and know every single day. Yeah, God can look at the stars. I want you to look at. Well, don't don't turn here. Psalm 147, verse 4. Psalm 147, verse 4. He determines the number of stars and calls them each by name. God is creator. And we see God is everlasting. Look at verse 28. Actually, let's read verse um, 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. We see God is everlasting. When the word is used everlasting, it really is pointing to the fact that God is now and that he forever will be. So that's the main thrust of the word. But it also has this idea of God not only is here and he's going to be here forever, but he always was. If you have kids and you're teaching them the Bible, one of the questions that will probably come up is, where did God come from? I don't know if you've ever been asked that question, and what have you said? The correct answer is, he's always been. And of course, the smart kid will say, what? (laughs) What do you mean he's always been? Everything that exists has a beginning, correct? Yes. Except for God. What do you mean? You mean there was never a time where God just like never was? He just always was? Yes. Wait a minute. I sat down and tried to think about this. When you go home, do it. It'll drive you crazy. It will. I promise you. Think God always was. There was never a time where God was not there. 
I was sitting there. I was like, okay, no, God, there was never a time where you just just appeared. <laughs> now I'm here. He, he always was. Can you think about that? Can you fathom that? He never, he, he never came into being. Just always was. You don't get it. You, you really don't understand. <laughs> Go home and think about it. And I promise you, you'll call me and be like, I went crazy today. Because I thought about it. He never had a beginning. He's everlasting. No beginning. And a lot of times we think about the fact that God, we, we're not really impressed with the fact that God is going to be there forever because he said, well, we'll be there forever too. But that's given to you by God. God gives you eternal life. You don't have eternal life within yourself. But God, he is within himself eternal, and he always was. And that's how he reveals himself. And lastly, I want to reread verse 27 because... God is near. God is near. Verse 27. Some of you might be able to identify with what Israel was saying here. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. I'm having troubles paying my rent. I'm going through depression. My relationships are being messed up. My marriage is falling apart. I can't pay for this. I'm sick. My health is failing. God, it seems like you don't care. But he says to us this morning that he's near. Do you not know, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those whose hope is in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. One of the reactions to a passage like this might be, God is too big, God is too great to care. He has so many other things that he could be dealing with and concerned about God doesn't care yet Isaiah wants you to know this morning God does care God sees those tears God hears those prayers there have been times where I've sat down and I'm just like God are you even listening to me is this I've been praying this prayer for years and it seems like you haven't answered God says I care he's like a shepherd look back at verse 11 of here of chapter 40 he says he tends his flock like a shepherd he gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart he gently leads those who have young that's what a shepherd is He cares. Being in ministry and pastoral ministry, one of the things that God has been giving me is a love for the people, for God's sheep. I love you guys, and I pray for you. 
And as a shepherd, you always know you have those special sheep. <laughs> those ones that are a little different than everybody else. They talk a little bit more. I'm sure shepherds had, you know, those those sheep that they talked to, you know, sheeps. That doesn't make sense. Sheep. <laughs> and he would talk to and say, you know, I don't understand this guy. He just stands and he looks at the fence all day. That's all the sheep does. All day. He eats circle and he eats grass in a circle and then sits in the middle of it. I have this weird sheep, but you know, as weird as he is, I love him. See, God has revealed himself as a shepherd. Here in this passage, he says he's a shepherd. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. In John 10, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. In Hebrews 13, he says he's the great shepherd. In 1 Peter, he says he's the chief shepherd. God reveals himself as one who cares. And a shepherd is not one that sits up on a throne away from all the sheep telling them what to do. He gets intimately involved in their lives. He picks them up and holds them close to his heart. He disciplines them. He's near them. God wants you to know this morning that he's near. And the idea that you shouldn't be thinking God is too great to care, but what you really should be thinking is God is too great to fail. One of the words that I hated growing up, I think all kids hate it, is the word wait. <laughs> Mommy, can I have that? Wait. <laughs> Christmas coming? Wait. Can McDonald's at the church? Wait. You know, us Christians, it's funny. God calls us children because we are just like children. God, can I have my money for now? Wait. Ah! I've seen temper tantrums in church. You can look holy and now and great and praise God, hallelujah. But you know your own heart. You know, you know your own frustrations with God. Because God has this rotisserie style. He does not he does not do he does not put stuff in the microwave like us. He has a slow process. He likes to take us to scenic room. We're like, God, you could have gotten there through here. And I would have had my blessing a long time ago. But sometimes the lesson that you learn just by going around the mountain is a lot more valuable than if you just went there and got the blessing. says those who wait he will renew their strength those of you guys if you're if you're watching tv and the um it's not working you're pushing the the remote and it's not it's not working what do you do break you know still not working then some of us will put batteries where in the freezer i've never done that but apparently it works but after a while you say at, at some point i gotta change the batteries some point, when he says, those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength, what he's saying is those who wait on the Lord, he will change their batteries. The Hebrew word means exchange. He will take your old and give you new. It's almost like you switch clothes. Those who wait on the Lord, he will give them 
strength for their weakness. But the word that he uses here in the NIV is hope. It's the same word. Wait and hope are the same word because we don't just hope and hope. Just the same way we don't have faith in faith. People talk about, they have, I have faith in my faith. No, you have faith in God. If I put faith in this chair and you saw off one of these legs, so I have faith that this chair will keep me up and I sit on it, I'm going to fall. I don't care how much faith that I have in it. Faith is only as good as the object you place it in. God is great, as we've been seeing. So when you place your trust and hope in him, you're saying, God, I'm expecting. Those who are hoping are expecting something. On Christmas morning, I plan to open some gifts from some of you. (laughs) Just putting in my request. (laughs) I'm hoping that when I open it, that there's something in it. I'm expecting that. So when we talk about hoping in the Lord, what he's saying is you are expecting something from God, but you don't have it yet. What are you hoping for? What are you waiting for? And whatever you're waiting for, whatever you're hoping for, God is saying to us, just wait on me and soon I will change your batteries. Soon I will give you the old, I'll give you new for your old. And so God is near. Don't think that God doesn't care because God does care. Now you can't magnify what you haven't seen or what you quickly forget. We're prone to forget, aren't we? That's why the psalmist says, praise the Lord, O my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget what? Not his benefits. We tend to forget. You can't magnify God if you've forgotten what he's done. This morning we come to the table. Not to forget. Communion sometimes has become just something that we do on first Sunday. You're just like, you know, I need to come in and, you know, get my, my, my bread and get my, my juice and I'm ready to go. But really, it's a time to remember. You ever thought how odd it is? As we come to communion, we're remembering that someone who was innocent was brutally murdered. That's what we're remembering. Could you imagine... Going to a party and somebody is there and they okay, say, welcome. What are you doing? We're, we're celebrating the slaughter of millions of people. What is that about? Yet Christians come in and we celebrate the slaughter, the murder of someone who was perfect, who had never sinned. How, how odd is that? It's only odd if you don't know the rest of the story. Because the one who was brutally murdered and slaughtered, put up on a tree, killed for us, rose again. So when we take the bread and when we take the cup, we're not saying, well, that was it. He died, that was it. But it's really just a prelude to the main attraction, which is the resurrection that God not only he, he stared death in the face and said, you know what? I'm going to stand in your way so you don't get Gina. I'm going to stand in the way so you don't get Janice. I'm going to stand in the way so you don't get Shantae. And that's what we celebrate. It's a celebration. I know sometimes communion can be somber and low, but it's really a celebration. 
the celebration. So let's bow our head.